Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. Good morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we left off. We're going to look at the last paragraph or so, verses 22 through 30. And this morning, our plan is, Lord willing, to finish John chapter 3. As we've been working our way through this series, through the gospel of John, as you're finding that, let me just give you a kind of heads up of what I think the outline of the text is this morning. This is the last, really, appearance that we see of John the Baptist. And now, John's gospel is written by John the Apostle, who is different from John the Baptist, who, remember, figured prominently in the first chapter as this forerunner, in a sense, kind of the last Old Testament prophet that we see in the early pages of the New Testament, who's pointing the way to Jesus. And here, at the end of chapter 3, we have this last witness of John the Baptist, as recorded by John the Apostle. And here, here's really what I think we can sort of summarize these verses in this morning with under two headings, the humility of John and the supremacy of Christ. And so as John's sort of last gift to us, John the Baptist's last gift to us, he gives us these two enormous pillars which have so much application for us today, the, the humility of John and ultimately us and the supremacy of Christ above all things. And as we go through this word, we're preparing our hearts to come to the table this morning. We generally do it on the first Sunday of the month, this Sunday. This month we're doing it here on the second Sunday where we as a church family are coming to the table to remember what Jesus has done on the cross for his people. So if you're a member of this church or you are a a Bible-believing, gospel-trusting believer in Jesus, you along with this local church family are welcome to come to the table with us. Let me pray now and ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Father, thank you for this day, April 11th, 2021, is ordained by you. Lord, you're not bound by days or gatherings or churches. You're not bound by anything. You can work however you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, whyever you want. But Clearly, Lord, you delight in doing beautiful, unpredictable, glorious things when your people gather with their Bibles open on their lap and the wind of the Spirit blowing through our hearts as we stare at your word. Would you do that this morning? Would you sanctify us by your truth and your word is truth? Help us now, Lord. Make believers more like Jesus. And any friends that are here not yet trusting, whether they're aware or whether they are unaware of their spiritual condition, open their eyes so that they would see and trust and believe in Jesus. And I pray this all for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's my plan. We're going to just work through this text, kind of verse, a few verses at a time. And then consider some implications of each of these two sort of headings, the humility of John and the supremacy of Christ. So let's look at the humility of John, verses 22 through 30, the first part of our text. Verse 22. After this, so remember what we looked at last week is is that Jesus has given us this this wonderful conversation with Nicodemus to tell us about the new birth and then this commentary that we looked at last Sunday on Easter Sunday of all verses, John 3.16, the love of God that he would give his only son. So after this conversation with Nicodemus, verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Let me just pause there. Notice that Jesus 
was baptizing. We don't think of that very often. Now, actually, if you kind of fast forward to the beginning of chapter 4, we see that Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing. It was his disciples. In fact, John 4, 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parentheses, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So Jesus isn't actually performing the baptism but he's presiding over the preaching of his word, which the baptism is happening at. Happening at. But just imagine that. I, you know, I think John puts that little note in there because aren't we just given to pride? You know, can you imagine the saints in heaven right now? That might be. There, there's no pride in heaven. But can you imagine during this time? about the pride that might have swelled up in a human heart after the resurrection, and you're like, I was baptized by Jesus. Aren't we just, come on, we're just always looking to be on some team that makes us feel better about ourselves. But Jesus is not actually doing the baptizing, but here's an interesting question that I don't want us to blow through, is that what was this baptism? Because the new covenant that we read about through the rest of the New Testament, that Paul and the other uh, New Testament writers so clearly articulate for us, which is symbolized, the the believing, what, what it means to be part of this new covenant is belief in Jesus, that we have died to our old self and we have, have been raised with Christ, which is what baptism symbolizes and signifies. That's clear in Paul's letters. For example, in Romans chapter Six and Colossians chapter two, Paul is showing us that baptism, this act of baptism, is a sign and symbol of our union in Christ and his work, the, the union with Christ and his work in the new covenant to make a people for himself. But that hasn't happened yet. And yet John, we read about in the first chapter, and Jesus here are baptizing. So what is this baptism? Well, if you remember when we looked at John chapter one, We determined that John's baptism, which Jesus and his disciples are doing at this point in redemptive history, is a kind of transitional act between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, the Mosaic law that would prepare the people for purification so that they could approach God, and then the new covenant where we are purified not through law abiding, but through our trust in Christ, who by his life, death, and resurrection, and our trust in him purifies us as his spirit dwells in us. And we're in this kind of transition period where this baptism of John the Baptist that Jesus is also participating in with his disciples is a kind of transitional baptism, a a baptism for purification. It's a kind of paving the way for the gospel that will will be preached. And that's what's, I think, happening here in Jesus and his baptism with his disciples. So let's keep going. Verses 23 and 24. John, meaning John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, for John had not yet been been put in prison. And remember, John, although it's not really recorded in John's gospel, John the Apostle's gospel, but in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John the Baptist is thrown in prison for his preaching against Herod and Herod's sin in taking his his brother's wife for himself. And there's this incredible, terrible scene of debauchery where where there's this big party. And and, basically, John the Baptist stands up and preaches against Herod's sin and his debauchery. And this causes Herod to be upset with John the Baptist and put him in prison and ultimately behead him. And John, the gospel writer, is alerting us to the fact that this is happening before that takes place. And remember, when we looked at John, and this should, let this be an encouragement for those of us who, 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 who at times struggle with doubt in the Christian life. This great man, John the Baptist, who in John chapter 1 sees Jesus coming and with great clarity and conviction, he says of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away away the sin of the world but then who chapters later in the other gospels we see john the baptist in prison 
waiting really to be martyred for his faith and for his conviction, sends word to Jesus' disciples to ask whether or not he's the one, truly the one, or should we seek another? And I know, I don't want you to lose that scene that this great man, John the Baptist, in fact, the Bible says of John the Baptist, Jesus says of John the Baptist, that there was not a greater man born of a woman. That's high praise. And yet, he's this man of great conviction. John chapter one, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But later on in his life when he's in prison, about to die, he's, he's struggling a bit. Are you the one? that we should expect, or is there another? Don't lose that encouragement that the Holy Spirit has put in the Bible to show us that even the strongest among us are frail. Let's keep reading, verse 25. Now a discussion. So Jesus is baptizing, John the Baptist is baptizing, and we have this scene where John gives us a great picture of humility. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So John's disciples are baptizing and this anonymous Jew, we don't know who he is, comes and implicit in this is, is, is not an argument, but they're talking about what, what's, what, what, what are you doing here? What's this about? And then that discussion caused John the Baptist disciples to sort of question what Jesus is doing and where they fit in this sort of puzzle. Verse 26, and they came to John, some of his, meaning his disciples, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, now they're referring to Jesus here, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, that's a provocative sentence. Think about this. What's going on here is that John, come on, let's get in this scene. John and his disciples, they've been following John the Baptist, and he has pointed to Jesus. He's the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Now some time progresses. Jesus' ministry is starting to rise to the forefront. John the Baptist's ministry is starting to fade into the background. And the men who are following John the Baptist, Baptist are actually getting jealous of Jesus' ministry. Can you imagine this? We, we should be able to because we, we have these things in us too. They are jealous. They are they are like glory thieves. That they even want glory. They're threatened by the glory that Jesus himself has. And they're jealous that they don't seem to be on the prominent team. Can you imagine that state of mind of John's disciples? Friends, before we read on, let's just, let's just admit, let's, we look at this and we're like, how can you be jealous of Jesus? Isn't that the whole point? But let's just admit that we are all prone to be glory thieves. Even the most spiritually mature among us are still sort of recovering glory thieves. We're, 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 we're recovering kleptomaniacs. And the thing that we want to steal all the time is glory for ourselves. And that's where these people are. And it's not meant for us to look at them and say, gosh, I can't imagine how these people would be that, 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 that sort of dense. Friends, this can be us. Verse 27, and John gives us a wonderful picture in this rebuke of his disciples for their jealousy of Jesus. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so he doesn't really even engage the question. He just sort of goes sort of bigger, more universal. And he's saying, listen, implicit in what he's saying is, why should I be jealous of Jesus? Everything I have comes from him anyway. You see, he doesn't get into the weeds with them. He, he, he blows it up into this bigger, grander truth. There's nothing that I have that doesn't come from God. And Jesus has come from God. So what right the natural conclusion is, what right do I have to be jealous of Jesus? 
Verse 25, 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John reminds him of his role in redemptive history. In fact, Paul gives us a, a, a wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians 4 to go along with what John is saying here. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 essentially crystallizes John's posture here. And this is what Paul says decades later in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If, you, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And John is just this wonderful picture of ministry. I mean, there's no reason for human pride. And, and let's not just let this hover sort of over John's life. Let's apply, what do you have? How is God blessing you? What has God given you in your life? Everything. Maybe it's some gift. Maybe it's financial uh, stability. Maybe, maybe it's, it's some intelligence. Maybe it's some vocational skill. Maybe, maybe you're an excellent soldier in the army. Maybe, whatever it is, whatever it is, there are no grounds for any human to ever look at themselves and say, man, what a guy, what a gal. That's John's this wonderful picture of humility before Jesus. And he continues on with this really provocative illustration in verses 29 and 30 that, that just cuts to the heart of what humility should look like in the life of a minister, certainly, and really in the life of every Christian. So 29 and 30, it's this scene that keeps popping up, this wedding scene of, of Jesus. And he's, he's picturing Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And that's a theme all throughout Scripture, really of Jesus. God has, has betrothed himself to his bride, the church, and he's coming for her. And we see the end of the story of redemption, really the beginning of eternity. And in, in, at the end of Revelation is this great wedding feast where finally the groom and the bride are fully joined together and they live forever and ever, and that is heaven. But listen to this scene here in verses 29 and 30. This is John the Baptist still speaking to his disciples in a kind of word of rebuke. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So he's, he's referring to Jesus as the groom and the bride as the people, the church that he's come for. The friend of the bridegroom, he's referring to himself there, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So he's saying that I'm just, I'm just in the wedding party. I'm just the best man. I'm just one of the groomsmen. And I'm not there to try and draw attention to myself. I've done lots of weddings over the years. In fact, uh, next Sunday will be our 16th anniversary as a church, by the way. Not, not exactly that day, but April 17th, 2005. We planted this church, and over the past 16 years, uh, we're rather just in various wedding venues or here in this, this room, we've done dozens and dozens and dozens of weddings. And I tell you, weddings are a wonderful thing, um, but there's nothing that's more frustrating than a, than a groomsman who's trying to be cute. You know what I'm talking about? The guy, he's like the college frat guy that just hasn't quite matured yet. But he was an old friend, and so the groom just sort of feels obligated to include him in the wedding party, and everybody's just kind of rolling their eyes because this 28-year-old guy is going on 15. You know what I'm talking about, that type of guy? And he's just, he's, he's Mr. Hey! And the picture here is that John is saying, man, that's the most spiritually, that's so off, that's so immature, that's just totally missing the point. It's not about me. I'm, I'm there to assist, to help, to do whatever I can, to help the bride, to, to pave the way, to encourage her, to, 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 to clear out the aisle so that when she comes down the aisle, she is ready for the groom. But much of American ministry is pastors trying to act like frat boys who are trying to flirt with the bride because they want the attention rather than Jesus. And beware of those types of churches 
We have lots of military people here and you come and you go. And, and, and I would say that be, beware of churches that don't center the life of their church on the word of God and beware of churches that emphasize too much a personality or a leader. It's a, it's, we, we are Americans and we are so prone to following charismatic personalities and there's nothing wrong with somebody having leadership gifts or person, that's fine. God will do those, he will work through those things. But friends, let's admit that as a culture, we are prone to be led by persuasive personalities which can at times draw our attention away from Christ and to a person. And let's, let's just be aware of that. And then John says in verse 30, just one of the, the most famous verses in this early part of John, this wonderful sentence, a kind of anthem of John's ministry and an anthem of the Christian life. He must increase, but I must decrease. More of him, less of me. This is such a, a critical spiritual truth and this is ultimately more of Christ, less of me. That's where joy is found. Look at the end of verse 29 and how it feeds into verse 30. Look at John's stance here at this wedding illustration that he's given and how it feeds into verse 30. He says, therefore, now that Jesus is the one that's receiving all the attention, now that my mission of the bride and the groom coming together and me paving the way for that. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And so notice here this, this kind of beautiful paradox that is so contrary to our world. John is saying that my joy is complete when I am decreased and Jesus is increased, which is the exact opposite of what this world will tell us. This world will tell us that, that, that you must get more for yourself. Be the real you. And John is wanting to fade from the scene. He's wanting less of him and more of Christ. Now there's a thousand and one applications to that truth right there in everyday life. But here, just let me give you two, two brief implications of the humility of John before we move on to the, the rest of this, his passage in the supremacy of Christ. First, just note, let us see and let us fasten ourselves to this and let us demand this in our church culture that humility is essential for faithful gospel ministry. Humility is essential for faithful gospel ministry. Now, what, is, what does humility look like in ministry? Well, we don't have hours to consider that, but let me just give you a few thoughts. I think of 1 Peter chapter 5. We won't take the time to read it, but it's this wonderful description of how elders and leaders of a church flock should comport themselves. And it says that they shouldn't lord their authority over the people, not domineering, but with gentleness, they should lead the flock. We, we live in a, in a world, in a culture that is addicted to leadership. I can't tell you how many things I get in the mail about being a pastor that leads efficiently. And while certainly there are some principles that might be helpful, the biblical picture of spiritual leadership is that of a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, not who is trying to most efficiently tend to the flock. Leadership in the church is messy and it requires pastors who are humble. You as a church member should demand humility from your leaders, leaders that are willing to admit mistakes, leaders who do not in a subtle way draw the attention of the church to themselves like the frat boy groomsman who's flirting with the bride. Demand that that not be the case in this church if it ever is so or in churches that you go to. Humility, don't mistake humility with a kind of passivity. Humility is strength. It's a boldness at times to say hard things, to not fear man more than God, but it's also a kind of wisdom of when to and not to speak. And I would just say, pray for me and your other leaders that we do this well. This is a very nuanced application of leadership and we live in a tricky world and a complicated world and this past year has complicated church leadership 
certainly more than any other time that I've ever been a part of it. And it has at times caused me to just sort of wonder, Lord, I do not know what to do. And we need your prayer in this. One final word before we move on to another aspect of humility is just that the the culture of a local church, how you as a believer, as a member of a local church can help or hinder of this, help or hinder the humility of your ministers really is in two ways. I think sometimes churches tend to think too highly of their leaders, of their pastors, maybe their senior pastor, the one who is primarily discharged with the duty of delivering the word. And it can be, it can sort of set the church up and you up and me up for a kind of disappointment. Now, clearly the Bible says that we should honor our leaders, that they are worthy of double honor, 1 Timothy 5, 17, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But I think in our American culture where we put so much emphasis on personalities, we tend to expect too much from our leaders and it creates a kind of unhealthy leadership culture that will inevitably cause disappointment and stress and oftentimes burnout and just utter crashes. And part of that, part of the way that you can help with that as a, as a believer is to commit yourself to the local church and to see yourself as a Christian in a local church as a kind of under-shepherd that we all are responsible for caring for one another. Don't assume that the pastor or the pastors know everything or that they have the the relational capacity to connect with everybody in the church and every generation and every personality type. Let me just admit something to you. Some of you are easier to be around than others. Can, Can we be honest? Is this a safe place? And... I have limitations and I have weaknesses and I have sin still lurking in my soul. And when the pastor or pastors have to be the one that is the primary person, not only in teaching, but organization and leadership and pastoral care and checking on everybody, friends, that is a recipe for disappointment and potentially disaster. And so you, that's one of the reasons why we believe meaningful membership is so important here at the church, that if you are a believer, become part of this church through our membership process where we get to know you, and then you, in the uniqueness of your personality, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you begin to take some of the responsibility for other Christians, church members, believers around you so that we together are part of the wedding party that isn't looking to a groomsman, but is looking to the groom. And we are all sort of, in a sense, kind of seamstresses working on the bride's dress to make it ready for that wedding day. Oh, dear ones, I plead with you for this. I plead with you for this. And we would see this more and more as a church. So secondly, let me get off of that soapbox. Secondly, second implication of John's humility is that humility is essential. It's just essential for true joy. Now we could spend a lot of time on this, but we won't. Let me just hurry along. Is notice that John links joy with his decrease in Jesus's increase. Friends, we live again, as I've, I've referred to earlier, a culture that pushes all of us. Let's be aware of this. It pushes all of us to self exaltation and the thing is is self-exaltation never it promises a load and it delivers a whimper it promises pleasure and it delivers pain every single time self-exaltation never satisfies and now all of us are kind of linked in or at least most of us are linked in to a drug that will addict us to self-exaltation which is social media and we just need to be aware of this that this is neither good nor evil 
It's something that we can redeem or reject, but we need to be aware of the landmines, the spiritual landmines that are laid out for a Christian in 2021. And one of the primary landmines in spiritual warfare is this culture that says to you, make much of yourself and think constantly about what other people are thinking about you. Friends, we were made to reflect glory back to God, not to receive it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that in the fall, in Adam and Eve, what it did is it caused us to curve, it caused us to bend things in on ourselves. And it, we, we are like a cul-de-sac where we want, we want everything to sort of come back to us. But that cul-de-sac, it just, it has no bottom. It just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into ourselves. And it never satisfies. Friends, we could spend a lot of time reflecting on just that. I just leave it up to the Holy Spirit and maybe some honest conversations with brothers and sisters around the lunch table or later this week of what that might look like in your life. Friends, we live in an age of self and we live in an age of insecurity where we want to associate publicly with those that we think can cause us to advance and in the dark places of our souls in private, we, we, we associate with people that help us publicly and we, we criticize and accuse them privately. And it's because we want to be made much of. Let's not let John the Baptist's example of humility just apply to those in ministry. Let's let it apply to ourselves. Humility, not being in the limelight, not taking the perfect picture, and I, 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 not, not, not being addicted to whether or not you have a following. Let that not be the basis for your joy, but let your obedience and your following and your love for Jesus and your desire for his exaltation in your life and in those around you, let's let that be our true joy. And friends, there's so much more we could say about this. I'm just gonna have to rely on the Holy Spirit to bring application and repentance to my soul and your soul. Friends, let's admit we are glory thieves. And this fights against our joy. And I could, I mean, not just stay out here. I mean, let me go in here. I can, I can assure you that I can trace every aspect of dissatisfaction in my life. At the core of that is some sort of aspect of glory thievery. And I think that's probably the case in your life as well. Secondly, the supremacy of Christ. Let's look at that, verses 31 through 36 quickly. The supremacy of Christ. So we've looked at the humility of John, now the supremacy of Christ. This is John, he continues his testimony. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. Speaking of Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, speaking of himself. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So just a quick summary of verses 31 and 32. What is John saying? He's basically saying Jesus is God, come from above, and because he's God, because he's come from above, he is above all. That's just a clear logic. And then he's speaking of himself, and he's saying, I'm from earth, and like every other earthly person, I am earthly and limited. And earthly there, he's not necessarily talking about sinful, he's just talking about the finiteness of humanity. We are limited. And then he goes on to say that by and large, and this is what what John has said, and John the Apostle has said in the first chapter, that the world has rejected Jesus. It has not received him. Verses 33 and 34, let's continue. Whoever, though, does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. What is John saying there? He's saying that to believe in Jesus is to say that everything God has said about him in the Old Testament is true. That God has sent the Son and he utters the words of God and here the Spirit is empowering the Son and we see this beautifully 
tightly wound testimony of the Trinity at work. We have the Father sending the Son, and then we have the Son uttering the words of God, and we have the Spirit of God given to the Son without measure, and we are to receive the testimony of the Son. That's just one one clear truth that there is no true spirituality apart from Christ. There's just no kind of vague, ambiguous, deistic, well, the man upstairs or some Hollywood star that says, well, I just, I believe in God. Friends, be wary of a religious spirit that acknowledges God without Christ. That's what, that's what John is saying here is that Jesus is the testimony, what he has done and will do in his life, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his reigning over all things. And believing in that is what it means to trust in the supremacy of Christ. And then verse 35, again, just this wonderful summary of Jesus. It says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He's given all things into his hand. Jesus reigns. This is what John is saying. I think this is very clear and straightforward, but let's make sure we don't just blow past it. Let's center on this. John is saying that Jesus reigns over everything. Now this leads to enormous implications for the Christian life, and, and I think it also leads to some legitimate questions. But before we get into that, let's just, let's just read a few other verses to, to support, to come around this truth that Jesus reigns over everything. He's, he's in control. The Father has given everything into his hand. I want us to not miss that. I want us to consider the supremacy of Christ. A few other verses that speak to this. This is Jesus speaking about himself later on in Matthew 11, verse 27. He says, all things, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Everything. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So friends there, Jesus is being explicitly clear that all things, authority, everything has been given to him by the Father. He says this at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18, before the Great Commission, where he tells the church to go and preach the gospel, he grounds his command to go in the fact that in verse 18 he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Springer read for us earlier from Ephesians 1, this beautiful testimony of Jesus, just Just let's bask in this picture here. Verse 21 of Ephesians 1, speaking of Jesus, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he, meaning the Father, put all things under his feet, meaning the sons, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And so he hasn't just made Jesus head over the church, but look at the beginning of verse 22. He says he put all things under his feet. So Jesus is reigning supreme over the universe. There was this Dutch prime minister at the turn of last century in the last 1800s, in the 1800s into the early 1900s, and he was a theologian and the prime minister uh, a, a Dutch theologian and his name was Abraham Kuyper and he has this wonderful famous quote where he says something to the effect of that there is not an inch or a molecule in this whole created order over which Jesus does not rightly exclaim mine. Think about that, not just in some far-reaching molecule, some, some the, the, the furthest atom out there, but over any principality or religious power, over any presidency or over any dictator, over any terrorist organization, over any financial market, over any cells that might be forming in your body, over any rebellious family member that you love, Jesus reigns over it all. Now, this brings up some enormous implications and some legitimate questions. First, 
an implication. Number one, nothing happens outside of his control. This is ground zero for a a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God and the the, the reign of Jesus. We, We must confess this. If we are going to be biblical Christians, which I think is the only actual type of Christian there is, nothing happens outside of Jesus's control. And we quickly want to say, as a sub-point to that, that he works all things together for the good of his people. Now, friends, let's pause here and realize that that is one thing to confess, then that is another thing to live out. And let's also realize that we're coming into this truth, the supremacy of Christ over all things, admitting to the fact that we're coming out of glory thievery, where we want to be in control, we want to be the center of all things, and so this great truth, as central and foundational as it is, takes work to massage into the fabric of your heart, amen? Or am I the only weak Christian who has trouble with this at times? Am I the only one? Okay, four of us. All right, praise God. (laughs) Nothing happens outside of Jesus' control. Not only does the Bible clearly state that, but Christians through the centuries have seen that in the scriptures. They've seen that in the unfolding plan of history, and we, we stake ourselves to this plan that this is true. In fact, if it were not true, let's all go home and take a nap. Because the world is somehow spinning in some sort of cosmic duality where we don't know the future, and that is not the truth. Everything, not one molecule, rests outside of his control. And even the evil that is done, friends, think about this, go further with this, press into this, even the worst atrocity that's ever been committed, somehow, somehow, without, being, without God being culpable for it, without him being, being, being blamed for it, without him being involved in sin, somehow it's under his authority and he works it out under his providence for our good and his glory. How, how do those things work together on the ground level? I have no idea. But I see it in the Bible. And I see it in the span of history. And I cling to it. Which then leads us to a legitimate question, which leads us to the second implication. What are we to do with with all of the terrible things that happen in my life? And why am I still sinning? Why is the world still seemingly so chaotic? leads us to the second truth, and I think it is this, the second implication, is that his, listen to this, think, think deeply with me, his rule and reign is already here. He's reigning in the heavens. He always has been. He's never not been reigning. But it's not yet fully consummated. Now this is, we're getting to the area of biblical tension and seeming paradox and mystery that we just can't fully articulate and understand from a human finite perspective. What do I mean by Jesus is reigning already fully and yet his reign is not yet fully consummated? He's in the heavens. We read Ephesians 1. That's not talking about the future. He has seated, past tense, above all authority. He has put, not he will put, he has put, Paul says, all things under his feet. But yet we still see chaos, sin, raging in our hearts and in the world. And so God, in his wisdom, which is often beyond us, has engineered a world that he has allowed to fall, that even though he's reigning over, he has given evil a kind of leash, and he has given history and time to slowly get to a place where what is true, Jesus' reign, will be fully and finally realized when Jesus returns as the groom for the bridegroom. And the, the tension, the reality, the experience of the Christian is that we are in between this. We are, we are, we are 
confessing that Jesus is fully reigning, but yet his reign is not yet fully consummated. And so we're living in this in-between period where we live in that, where we trust for that future, where he actually uses our real lives to be the way that he brings about which is already true in heaven. How do we understand this? Well, we can't fully, and the Bible admits that. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking to Israel through the prophet. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you have trouble reconciling these things? Do, do you? Right now are you thinking, how can that be? I don't know how this... Do you, are you having trouble with that? Welcome to the merry band of Christians who want to confess the utter sovereignty of God and who struggle with the world still around us. Amen? Join, join, join the throng of people marching towards God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. That's an important verse. That means you've got, you've got a revealed word here. Okay, you, God has given us a sufficient word that Second Peter says to us, has given us everything necessary for life and salvation. And so we, 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 we walk by faith according to what we know. Jesus reigns, the world is broken, he's coming again, he works all things together for his glory, he's reigning in such a way that is beyond my comprehension, and so here I am in this messed up world with my heart that is still pulled in a thousand different directions, and I must live with other people who are in this same place called the local church, and I walk in humility towards God who has promised to bring me all the way home. That's the only way to do the Christian life, friends. If you don't do it that way, you will get chewed up. You will get chewed up, or you will live a fruitless, fruitless life. And on that judgment day, according to 1 Corinthians 3, you'll stand there with wood, hay, and stubble, and you may get into heaven, but it'll be with smoke on your garments because, because all of your trinkets and all the stuff that you focused on on yourself will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. And I, I don't want to be in that line. And then he concludes in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, what a picture. Once again, John makes things crystal clear for us. Whoever trusts in Jesus, whoever believes in him, whoever is putting their hope on not only his reign, but his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, his reigning ascension. Whoever's trusting in Jesus has eternal life. Friends, this is what verse 36 is saying. It's, it's one of those verses that's a kind of mini summary of the whole Bible itself. It's a mini summary of the gospel. It's telling us that we are all, by nature, because of our fall into sin, as John fought so beautifully prayed at the beginning of the service, because we're in our father Adam by nature. We're sinners. We all have fallen, even the best among us. We are fallen sinners, and the Bible's utterly clear. I don't know what type of picture you've had of God before this, but the Bible is utterly clear that the wrath of a holy, loving God and his wrath is an outwork of his love which is his holiness is on people who are sinners and who are sinners all of us by nature and the good glorious news of the gospel is that God does not leave us in that place but he comes to us he sends the son he gives him the spirit without measure he gives all these witnesses to say look to him look to him look to him he gives us the bible to say look to him he opens our heart he gives us a new heart he enables us to believe he calls us to believe and now all of humanity is divided into two groups those who are trusting in Jesus for the their only hope before a holy God and those who are not. 
And those who are trusting in Jesus, this is what they're saying. They're saying that I will meet God someday. I'm, I'm an eternal soul. I was made for forever. And my only hope of being reconciled, my only hope of eternity with God is that I need somebody to take the penalty for my rebellion. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. And those who believe, who trust, who are putting their hope for reconciliation with their creator loving God, who are trusting in Jesus' perfection, Jesus' obedience, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' victory over death, sin, and the grave, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' reign and rule. That's what it means to be a Christian, to trust in that, to put your hope in that. And those that do not, friends, the Bible's utterly clear. The wrath of God that Jesus absorbed for those that believe and only those that believed remains on you. And so we come now to this table. We come now to these little pieces of bread and this little cup of juice. And what does it commemorate? It commemorates, it symbolizes, it's meant to cause us to remember the cross where Jesus bore the wrath of God, where his body stood in our place. He took the punishment for us and he rose again in victory and signed a new covenant. He sealed it with his blood that was spilled for our sin. And so who should come to this table? Only those that are trusting in him, that are believing in him, who have no hope in themselves, who have no hope in their own righteousness, who admit that they're glory thieves, who trust that Jesus in some way that we can't fully understand is ruling and reigning and all of our eggs are in one basket. All of our rocks are in one pile. All of our hope is in one king and his name is Jesus. That's who can come to this table because what we're saying when we come to this table is that Jesus in his body and blood has bore the wrath of God. He satisfied it. He removed it. He extinguished it. And he turned that wrath into favor and grace. And if you're not yet believing in that, don't, I don't want you to come just yet. I don't want you to partake of this because I don't want you to say something that you don't yet believe. I'm so glad you're here. And if you want to talk more about this myself or any of the pastors or really any, any Christian around you that you know, let's talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to actually believe in him. If you're still unclear in that, what it means to actually believe in him. But if you're a believer in Jesus, when you come to this table, that's what you're saying. That all my hopes in him, he's taken the wrath from me. And because the greatest evil, the crucifixion of the Son of God, has taken place for my behalf, then I know that if he can take the greatest evil, which is the killing of the Son of God, he can work every other lesser evil some way, in some mysterious way, ultimately for our good. If he's taken the greatest evil, and he's brought the greatest good from it. He can take every other evil and use it somehow for our good. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table now, may we remember these things. May believers feast in this truth of our own humility and the supremacy of Christ. And may any unbelievers, Lord, trust in Jesus as they see this meal portrayed in their front of their eyes. Be glorified, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.